This is Brandon Williams from Chastity, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. This is Keith. And Tommy. And we're back with a brand new episode. And tonight on the show, the one, the only, Russ Rankin of Good Riddance. We had a great conversation with Russ. We talked about Good Riddance. We talked about his new solo record, Come Together, Fall Apart. We talked about the fact that Russ is a hockey scout, yeah. which I didn't know. That was an interesting conversation. Very well. My thing was like, I, I, I kind of regret this. I never asked him his background in hockey. Like, is he a hockey player growing up? Like, that's my question. We'll just call him up. I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to us and, and do some follow-up. For sure. Yeah, so you're going to hear the conversation with Russ in a second. Now, folks, please don't forget, you have to support us, the show. Give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Now, we're getting closer. I have to remind you again, folks, the other podcasts, I peek in on the other podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, they have hundreds, hundreds of reviews. Tommy, I looked at one podcast, and it had like over 700 reviews. Can you believe that? No. Are they yeah. re- are they real reviews though, or is it like Russian bots or some like goofy shit? Are they paid their friends to go do it? Like I, you know what? Whatever it is, we need it. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> so listen up, folks. Go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Give us a five star review. We're at somewhere around sixty six on Apple Podcasts and I think fifty two on Spotify. We need to get over a hundred, and we need you to get there because on every phone I have, I've given the review and I can't do any more. <laughs> Oh, and also, the new scene, Life is Music is Life, long sleeve, beautiful shirt is available at the Death Wish Inc. store. Head there and type in the new scene. The shirt will pop right up. You want this shirt, you need this shirt, and you have to get it before it gets too warm out. Or you could still wear it even though it's kind of warm out. I do that, you know? I like long sleeve stuff. I don't know. It's a thing. Nah, cut the sleeves off. Yeah, you could do that too. I mean, it's up to you. And then you could like hang the sleeves in your apartment because there's all these nice designs on them. Yes. there. Honestly, my favorite part of the shirt is the heart on the chest and then the sleeves. Like the sleeves yeah. are the best. I love it. I love it. And, and there's a lot of iodine recordings news. So strap in. Okay. Number one, one line drawing has their first record since like 2004. It's called Tender Wild. It comes out June 24th. One line drawing, of course, is Jonah Matranga's solo band. He has a crazy amount of guest musicians on this record. We've got Chris Caraba from Dashboard Confessional. We've got Norman Brennan from Texas is the Reason. We've got Zach Lind from Jimmy Eat World. And that's just a few. There's even more great folks on this album. You want it. You need it. Jonah is great. He's been on our show. You want to listen to that? So one line drawing, Tender Wild. Check it out. There's also a new band. Iodine has signed another new band, Tommy. I love it because I just saw some of the names that are involved with this, and I really like one of them. Really like, yes. The new signing is Light Tower featuring Chris Enriquez of On the Might of Princes, Spotlight, and Gracer. Light Tower combines elements of shoegaze, post-hardcore, and emo, but offers something very unique 
That was Strike of Flame with fans of the genres, and those are three of our favorite genres. So welcome to the label, Light Tower. Can't wait to hear the band. Can't wait to hear more. I Honestly, the, the, On the Might of Princes has one song that it stands out in my head as one of the best kind of examples of when someone goes, what's the kind of music that like you used to listen to when you were younger? I, I put that on there because it's such a great song, and I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but... It's so beautifully done, and unfortunately, I know their their bass player passed away, I guess, a year and a half, two years ago, but I'm so glad to hear that Chris is moving on and doing other things, and I can't wait to hear what Light Tower sounds like. Yeah, Tommy is going to remember the name of that song, and we're going to throw it on our <laughs> Spotify 2022 playlist, because I want to hear it too. So looking forward to more from Light Tower, and folks, Iodine Recordings will be an official sponsor and vendor at this year's Furnace Fest. Look for me there, folks. Look for me. And Corey Brim, if you're listening to this, say hi this year. You have to. Okay, and in music news, tragically, Taylor Hawkins, drummer of the Foo Fighters, has passed away. The Foo Fighters were touring in South America. They were scheduled to play Bogota, Colombia, Friday night. Taylor was found dead in his hotel room. No other details are available. So our condolences to the friends and family and bandmates of Taylor Hawkins. That is that is a really tragic loss. And I hope that uh, the people that knew him can find some semblance of peace as the days go on. And say what you will about the Foo Fighters. They certainly have their place in music history. I think those first two records are classic. I didn't really keep up too much after that. But rest in peace, Taylor Hawkins. And... You know, I was on Twitter and I saw everybody giving this band a hard time. Wednesday is the band's name from Asheville, North Carolina. They posted an itemized list of how much it cost them to get to South by Southwest and perform. And there's gas costs and hotel costs and everything else. And people piled on and made fun of them and posted their own fake lists of costs and told them to just sleep in the van and listen. I get it. I've been on tours with no hotel rooms. I've slept in vans. A lot of us have done it. But how about we don't eat our own, okay? Why don't we direct the hatred and the sarcasm and all of this towards the organizations that make this life a reality for small touring bands? Why don't we direct that hatred towards oil companies who are jacking up gas prices and making it so bands can barely tour? Why don't we direct that hatred towards organizations in this country who don't support artists like they do in other countries. Why are we eating our own? Come on, let's do better. Now, folks, you saw in the post, this is not a drill. This is not an April Fool's gag. This is not a joke. This is going to be Tommy's last episode of the show for a while. Right, Tommy? We are confirming this. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, this is going to be it for a little while. Yeah. And we're going to go into great detail in segment three and give Tommy a proper send-off. But right now, we are going to speak to Russ Rankin. Enjoy. His predilections have cursed him before. The ones designed and perfected in secret. And he's the owner of opinions. Just as if they were faded to part. No silence, 
reverberation There's a message defining, believing And he's the author of his confusion Possessing facts yet refusing to use them He's waiting, untainted For a decision he knows will change everything She's frozen, words unspoken On a future, she'll never be here again All right, folks, we're here now with Russ Rankin. Russ, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you here, Russ. We're very excited to talk about Good Riddance. We're very excited to talk about your solo record, Come Together, Fall Apart, which is out now. But first, Russ, we've got to know, how are you doing today? I can't complain. Doing, doing all right. A lot, a lot of people have it a lot worse than me. So, Right. What'd you do today? Walk us through it. <laughs> uh, it's not, not that exciting. Uh, just h- hanging around with my two cats, ran some errands. Uh, I just moved into a new house, so I'm sort of still getting things situated the way they're supposed to be. Uh, answered some emails, communicated with my bandmates a little bit, checked in on Chuck to see how he's doing. That's about it. Where's the new house? Uh, it's not that far from where I was living before. But it's it's my first house, so it's kind of a big deal. Are you still in Santa Cruz? Yeah, this, the town I'm living in is called Scotts Valley, but it's in Santa Cruz County, yeah. Nice. So this is the first house you've purchased? Yes. That's got to be a big deal because I have a lot of friends uh, who have purchased homes, but I live in New York City, so it doesn't seem like that will be a reality for me anytime soon. Yeah, probably not, no. <laughs> Was it as bad as everyone says with the paperwork and the closing costs and all this madness? It, it was a lot. It was a lot of stuff that I'm just, you know, no, nothing really can prepare you for it. It was just, yeah, overwhelming. But I had a few good people in my corner to walk me through a lot of it. So I'm grateful for that. Okay. So you grew up in Santa Cruz, yes? Yes. Yeah. Tell us about your upbringing a little bit. I'm the oldest of two brothers. Yeah, not not too much to tell, really. Just pretty pretty basic, like nothing too crazy. Nothing too crazy happened. My 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 dad was a lawyer. Uh, my mom was a was a mom slash housewife, and that was pretty much it. We grew up in a more rural part of Santa Cruz, the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, so it was lots of bike riding with neighborhood kids and exploring trails and doing all that kind of stuff. So, have you always been interested in music? I think so. I, I think not not to this extent. Like I wasn't nobody shoved me on a stage and put a microphone in my hand when I was six years old, if that's what you're asking. But I <laughs> I my dad sang in the choir at the church that near where we grew up and there was always music in our house. My mom had there was a piano and my mom would play the piano and sing and but I never I was supposed to be an artist. Like I was I was really good at drawing from from as far back as I can remember. I used to win prizes in grade school and stuff. And so my parents were always pushing me to do something with my art. So that was, I was supposed to do that thing. When and how did you shift from art towards more music? I never aspired to do anything. I, I mean, I played, I played snare drum in the high school marching band where I went to high school. And I liked doing that. And then, one, and then I got turned on to punk rock around that time. And then... 
I had some friends that were just learning to play instruments and jamming. And I told them that I would sing for them because it was just like three of those three guys. And I said, well, I'll sing for you guys, but you got to learn these Sex Pistols covers because they were, they were playing like ACDC and stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I wanted them to play like Sex Pistols songs. And so I started singing. That's kind of when I first started doing that. As far as punk rock goes, was that your entry point? I know you've uh, been involved in some hardcore and stuff over the years too, but was punk rock the true love? Uh, to me, they're, they're kind of they're two sides of the same coin. So I, I don't really know that that I was into one before the other. Like, it, and it also depends on I think someone's age and background. Like when I was growing up, the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag were hardcore. But if you right. if you ask a nineteen year old kid today what hardcore is, they would probably come up with something much that sound much different. Yeah, big time. So tell us about your trajectory a little bit, the bands you discovered, and some of the early shows you saw that that sold you on the whole thing. Well, the first band I really got into was the Dead Kennedys, Sex Pistols, kind of a lot of those like entry level bands, uh, Misfits, Bad Religion. I would you know I'd go to the record store and. Whatever, whatever band had the coolest looking album artwork or the like, the most radical looking live photo on the back cover, I would buy it. And I would, I was, I was big into compilation records because I was like, cool, I could check out all these bands for one low price and and see if I like any of them, and then I can go buy more of their stuff. And uh, so, yeah, Dead Kennedys, Sex Pistols, first bands I was really into. When's the first time you got to see some of these bands live? Like, did you ever see Black Flag back in the day? I didn't. I, I missed them. I, it's funny because there was a club in Santa Cruz called Club Culture back then where all the bands would play at. And there were shows all the time. And But I lived, I lived outside of town and I didn't drive. And so the downtown bus station in Santa Cruz was right across the street from Club Culture. So I'd be waiting on the last bus to get back up to where I lived and I see these people lined up for the show across the street. And if I knew then what I know now, I would have just gone and slept in an alley or whatever. Cause I, <laughs> I would have been able to see, I would have been able to see some pretty, pretty cool shows. Like everybody came through there, like black flag SSD, uh, just, you name, you name a band from like the early, early to mid eighties. And they probably played club culture. Wow, yeah. I think I would have even slept in an alley for that. That sounds like some classic stuff. Really quick, Russ, one of the things that grabbed me about Dead Kennedys was I learned from that band. Like, because I would listen to stuff and I would go, like, they would be like, you know, there would be a line about Governor Jerry Brown. I'd be like, who's Jerry Brown? Like, who the fuck is this? Or like, they would talk about social issues that I had no idea about, like apartheid. And I was like, wait a minute, what, what is happening? Like, what, this is like a record. Why am I learning stuff from it? Is that something that you kind of like gravitated towards or was it something that kind of grabbed you about the music as well? Not only just kind of the, the nature of the, the, the sound. Yeah, definitely. Like I, the mu musically, I didn't have the, the lexicon to sort of explain to myself what drew me in about them. But now I know it was, it was East Bay Ray's really creepy guitar playing that nobody ever could replicate. <laughs> and and Jello's voice, but but yeah, lyrically, I was I was always from the beginning drawn to the more political bands and music. And same deal, like back then, there was if you wanted to learn something, you had to grab a, an encyclopedia or or something like that. And my parents were my parents were Carter Democrats, and so I would 
be listening to the Dead Kennedys, and I'd ask my mom, like, hey, who's Pol Pot? And she would go off and tell me all this stuff. And what's Watergate? And just le- learning that way. Uh, or she would say, look it up, which she did a lot. And, <laughs> but, yeah, so a lot of those things, like, later on, I purposely didn't write lyrics that way because a lot of the Dead Kennedy stuff is about specific events in time, which as time marches on, like, they become more distant and it's harder I think for people who are new, newer to their music decades later to get the full, the full picture. So I, I like to write more allegorically and, and stuff like that, but they were, yeah, like they, their lyrics and their music got me questioning things big time for sure. Yeah. That was one of those things. I remember I, I had, um, jeez oh, i th- i think it was that it was the holiday in cambodia like lp but it was the one that was just the the single and it was like holiday in cambodia in the front and then i forget what the other one was but i remember listening to it being like what are the killing fields like, i got i i literally had to go grab the encyclopedia britannica at my house and like start reading about it and my mother came down and was like what are you reading about and i was like uh there was like this mass exodus of people like they just left the cities in cambodia and my mother's like why are you reading about this it's like the the record i was listening to was talking about it and it was that was where like my mom kind of was she didn't like the music i listened to but she also kind of liked the fact that it kind of stoked my curiosity and things that were happening around the world but yeah that's really cool that i I like that you're talking about in terms of allegorically like those are things that are going to stand the test of time rather than like a singular event, like, okay, well, that that's what happened. And, you know, like if you write a song about Watergate in the late 1970s, it resonates because it like just happened and it's, and it's informing the entire body politic of our country. But in 2022, if you take, if you talk about Watergate, most people are going to maybe have heard it in passing, but not know what it is. And so it loses a lot of that force. And so I th- that's why I like to write lyrics that aren't about a specific thing, but could be applied to, to many things. I think that's the way to go. And if you look at Watergate in terms of everything that's happened since, it's kind of tame. It's like some guys looked at some papers in a hotel. I mean, <laughs> so what? There's a lot more going on right now. Well, we, we've grown a thick skin to, to endure um, poor behavior from those people that we empowered to speak for us. So you're discovering punk rock. Was that your first venture into playing music when you told your friends that you would sing for this band? Yeah. So how did that go? What did that turn into? Uh, it eventually turned into Good Riddance. Uh, the, the drummer ended up being the, the the first drummer of Good Riddance that played on Forgotten Country. He's a kid that I grew up with Like since we were like six months old. We were neighbors and our parents were friends and we were friends from way, way back. And he... Yeah, he was the drummer of that group that I was said I would play sex, sex, sing Sex Pistol songs with, and he ended up being the the first drummer of Good Riddance. Good Riddance probably really started in 1990 or 91. I would say when it, when Luke joined full time, uh, Luke Luke was playing guitar in a thrash metal band from the area called Root Awakening, and we would play shows together. And he was starting to get turned on to more punk, like via bands like DRI and, and RKL. And he was getting into some, he was, he was like making a, a sort of a transition from being a straight up metal guy to kind of a crossover slash punk guy. And he and I became good friends and our guitar player broke his wrist skateboarding one time. We had a party book to play and Luke filled in on guitar and played. And he and I hit it off musically and we, we became friends, like I said. And 
and then it became pretty apparent that he he had a pretty good work ethic as well as I did. Like by that point, you know, I had quit drinking and I was wanting to take the band seriously, take music seriously. And I wanted to play shows out of town and try to record, you know, all the things that, that working bands do. And Luke's band broke up and he asked me if I, if he could join on second guitar. And I was like, fuck yeah, of course you can. And, uh, that's, that was new year's Eve, 89 to 90 at a party that he asked me that. And so pretty much the next couple, two, three years were, were spent with, with like a burst of creativity for our band and, and calling it good riddance. And Luke had just all these riffs pouring out of him, and we were writing way more original songs. And it was, uh, that was kind of the beginning of it. So you mentioned you quit drinking. How old were you at the time? I think, I think I was 19. So how bad was it? I mean, was, were you like out of control and you, you just decided you had to stop? Yeah, it was bad. It, it was bad. And I decided I had to stop. And then I, I kept drinking anyway. And that's <laughs> it's bad when that happens. No, I, yeah. And I asked because, you know, I eventually had to stop everything because I was so out of control. And I can think of a million times where I said, yeah, man, I'm going to quit and focus on this or quit and focus on that. And I just never could uh, until I was much older. So, I mean, did you did you manage to stop? Yeah, yeah. And did you do it just out of sheer willpower? No, no, I I had some help. Yeah, I'm always interested in people's process because, you know, I myself had to stop at some point. I I think I I was, the the compulsion went away undeservedly, like a a lot of grace. And then I found, I found recovery and I started doing that whole thing. And I found other people that, that I could relate to kind of the way they drank. And, and that's been sort of my, my tribe since then okay so we've got good riddance together we're starting to take this seriously did you just start gigging out and booking your own tours and getting out and playing and stuff yeah like we so so luke and i were getting rolling in like the early 90s and we we quickly realized that it's hard to find people it's hard to find enough people that that want to put in the work that we wanted to put in like everybody wants to be in a band but not everybody is willing to like do do the things that are necessary. At least that that was sort of our attitude. So like we were switching members, we were trying to find people who were who were, who were like like-minded to us. And then also that that precipitated the, our bass player at the time and our drummer suddenly moving to Tahoe to work at a snowboarding resort and we were like fuck what do we do now? We have no like we half our band just up and left and, and that's when we did state of grace just to keep playing music and to keep doing something. But at the, all we, we are always in the, in the back of our minds. We're, we're wanting to get good riddance back on track, which happened a couple of years later. Yeah, and I like that you seem to be both involved with melodic punk and more hardcore influence stuff. Yeah. Like I honestly, when you guys, when you say that, I don't really know what, what you mean. Cause, cause like I said, cause like, there's so many, there's so many sub genres like right now, like there's pop punk and, hardcore and metalcore and all this stuff so like state of grace or only crime i think is more hardcore and then if uh i would say good riddance is more punk rock yeah i mean i guess it's all it's all relative how do you categorize it i just say hardcore punk like i i like i said i when i was when i was growing up black flag and the dead kennedys were hardcore so is it just all hardcore punk to you hardcore was like I, I guess maybe a band that wouldn't be considered hardcore from back then would be like the Meat Men or something like that. Yeah, something with more of like tongue in cheek or like the hardcore was a, was not only like a sound, 
but it was the intent and the ferocity of the music, the way right. that the way that it was delivered and what what bands were singing about. At least that's the impression I got. Yeah, it's interesting how different people categorize it. Like if you asked a 19-year-old kid in the year 2000 what hardcore was, they would pr- they might say poison the well. But if you say that to a guy 15 years earlier, he might beat you up. Everybody has different definitions. Yeah, I think what a lot of what happened is a lot of times later on people when people played music that they for me that they considered hardcore to me it sounded like metal. Right. But that's just because I'm I'm old and when I was, you know, I, metal was metal and that sounds like metal. But but for some people that's hardcore. And for some right. people now hardcore is like power violence or or uh, bands that are just really really fast and short songs. So it really it really depends on I think somebody's age and what they grew up listening to and what they were around. So I think it's just a highly subjective term. Uh, so like I'm always kind of reluctant to put things in boxes when I do interviews because my box may be different from your box, and like nobody's nobody's wrong, like nobody's right either. Well, right now everything you say is right because you're the one talking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, so Good Riddance is together. Tell us about the early days touring and how things started picking up and and how you first get the attention of FET Records. So Luke and I, thanks to that book that Maximum Rock and Roll put out called Book Your Own Fucking Life, Luke and I booked, we had booked a tour out to Houston and back and up to Seattle and back with State of Grace through that book, which the tours that we didn't make any money on and Luke and I basically paid out of pocket for the expenses and so we did the sun kind of the same. We used the same contacts to get good riddance out to Texas and back and then up to Seattle and back. And those, the Seattle thing kind of fell apart. Like we had a lot of shows cancel last minute and we ended up just scrambling. And uh, we got, we, we made up some shows like we got added to shows or stuff like that. Uh, the response was good when we played live and we had a demo tape out that we were selling Back then, Maximum Rock and Roll was still reviewing demo tapes, and they gave ours a really good review. It was called Loaded for Bear, and we were selling those in, a, in local record stores in Santa Cruz, and they were, they were selling out, and we were selling them at shows, and the, the response was really, really good. And a guy from Texas who had a label called Little Deputy Records hit us up regarding the demo, and he wanted to press four songs off of that. And so we were like, we were stoked because... People can record over demo tapes, but they can't record over seven inches. So it was like <laughs> legit. It was legit to have to have that. And so we 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 released that seven inch with his label. More good reviews. Flipside and Maximum Rock and Roll. And meantime, Luke and I are are basically sending demo tapes to every label we can think of. Hundreds of them. It was like it was like working two jobs because we all we both had day jobs. And we were both every waking hour that we weren't at work, we were working on the band, just trying to get out of Santa Cruz and trying to get somewhere and do something. And so, yeah, the first couple of tours were were pretty good, considering that we booked them ourselves and didn't really have anything big released. And right around that time, Luke and I had both gone to see No Effects play. I saw them because I was going to see Poison Idea, and Poison Idea canceled, and so No Effects became that def- the default headliner. I was struck by how entertaining they were and, and I liked their music. And so I would go back to see them every time they came to the Bay Area. And right around that time, we noticed that Mike had a label. He just started. And I liked all the music he was putting out. I liked his band. And so that kind of became our goal. 
and we were still sending sending stuff everywhere to other labels and we would have taken almost anything but we got a written handwritten letter back from mike about our demo tape which was pretty cool it was really encouraging yeah so we had we luke and i had bought a van to tour in and when we weren't touring another band hit up luke to see if he would if they could pay him to drive them and use his use our van and so luke drove this band up to vancouver for a festival and while he was there a guy who was a promoter here in santa cruz who was kind of quasi managing this band that was using the van he introduced luke to to mike because no effects was playing this festival too he's like hey this is luke he's in that band good riddance they've been sending you stuff and that's so luke met mike and, and luke Michael's like, yeah, I want to do something with you guys. Like, let's let's get together and figure this out. And Luke called me super excited, like, hey, I just met Fat Mike and all this stuff. And so his plan was to was to release a seven inch and then let us kind of stew and write some better songs and then maybe do a full length down the line. But in the in the in the time between making the demo tape, uh, we had got a new bass player and we had written a bunch of a bunch of new material that we thought was really strong. And so uh, Mike Fat got us into a studio to record the songs for the 7-inch. And while we were in there, we hammered out all these other songs for him to hear. And he, he quickly decided that we had enough for a full-length album pretty quick. And so we went on to do Forgotten Country. All right, so you're signed with Fat. We snuck in these extra songs. We've got our first LP, Forgotten Country. Tell us a little bit when you saw things starting to pick up and, uh, you know, the the band growing well once once that happened things started happening really quickly there was a little bit of a buzz about us and there was a major buzz about fat records this was 1994 95 like it was just about to blow up as far as fat records epitaph like this this sort of like sound this uh melodic new melodic punk sound and so any bands that were affiliated with these labels suddenly were like thrust into the spotlight. So we was we didn't know it at the time, but it was a really fortuitous time to be to be on that label. And so we we got asked to go to Europe with no use for a name. So Forgotten Country we record in the fall, late fall. It comes out in January of ninety five, I think. And we did there was a, the first the first ever fat tour. So it was in, in, in January and it was just some shows in California and Las Vegas and maybe, maybe Phoenix. And it was us opening. We were the new band. We were like, sure. Yeah, we'll open. Fuck it. That sounds great. And it was us strung out tilt, no use for name and lag wagon. And so, and those shows were great. We had really good response. We sold a lot of t-shirts. People were excited about us. We were, we were sort of like the, harder edged more political band of the bunch i guess which resonated seemed to resonate with a, with a certain group of people that that liked the band and then we went to europe with no use for a name and while we were over there we were you know calling the label and and we got a booking agent and suddenly we're getting offered this tour that tour this tour that tour and we were in europe and we all kind of looked at each other and realized we were gonna have to quit our jobs and we were terrified because we didn't know if it would work out or if we'd be able to keep the lights on or pay rent or put all our stuff in storage or what was going to happen. And our drummer realized that he he wasn't willing to be gone away from his wife that much. Like he, it kind of dawned on him that that this new paradigm of the band was wasn't gonna wasn't gonna do it for him. And so he quit. 
but yeah, that was, that was exciting and, and really scary because suddenly like all these things are falling in our lap. Like we got offered this tour, this tour, this tour, and like, it's just all stacking up ahead of us and it's what we wanted, but it's still, when it happens, it's kind of like, fuck, what do we do? Because this, you know, we, we might be all homeless and, and, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a trip. Yeah, there's no guarantees. I mean, you're you're entering into this mysterious world where you don't know what could happen. What was the job you were working at the time? I was working at a bookstore cafe, like I was a, I was a barista in a cafe bookstore, kind of like remember how Borders used to be? Yeah, Barnes and Noble. It was like it was like a it was an indie Santa Cruz only one of those. So, what was the conversation? Did you call them and say like, "Look, I've got this band. I got to go." Well, they knew I had a band and stuff, and I just told them that we were getting busier and busier, and I had to. And Aaliyah, they're all happy for me. Yeah, so the band, you guys lived off of the band, doing the band as your sole thing for a while, right? Yes. And uh, what did that look like? Were you just on tour all year and, uh, you know, the sales and everything covered your lifestyle? Yeah, it was constant touring and constant shows. And then writing a new album, recording it, and then another constant tours, constant shows. And... I was living in an apartment. I had a roommate. Uh, our rent was for Santa Cruz at that time. Our rent was pretty, pretty reasonable. It wasn't like, it wasn't palatial. It was like pretty basic generic apartment. And, uh, so I would basically come home from tour and have, have enough money to, to pay rent and my part of the bills and then whatever like expenses, you know, back then there wasn't, there wasn't cell phones, there wasn't streaming services, there wasn't internet in your apartment. So it was basically like, you're paying your electric bill, water bill, and if you have car payments. Uh, so it was like, yeah, kind of like living paycheck to paycheck, but just in, in, in bigger increments of time. Would you, get, would you get like a lump sum from the label or something or touring and have to hold on to it? Or did you have money coming in more like how a paycheck would? I, I really don't remember. I mean, we, we got advances. Like a label will advance you sometimes. Yeah. And we... We made so many mistakes. I, I I think, and we can't be the only band that's done this. Although maybe we are, but there's there's so much that that we didn't know. Getting signed and like becoming a working band. There's so much we didn't know. Talk about some of that. Well, just there's no there's. I also work in sports, like I work in hockey, and when a when a player gets drafted to the NHL, they go through these seminars. Like, hey, you're a young kid from a small town. Here, someone's going to drop all this money and attention in your lap. What are you going to do? Like, there's there's these seminars that you go to to learn how to like not be a donkey and to like take care of your finances and to yeah to make sound decisions. Like, just there's like some attention paid to what's about to happen to you to prepare you. And for bands, there isn't anything like that. At least there wasn't for us. And so, like a really a really good and funny example is on our second album. We we were going out to tour that summer after Comprehensive Guide came out, so it was '96, and so we needed we needed merchandise to sell. So Fat pays for all this merchandise, and then we just went out and sold it and kept the money. Like we didn't know, and like Aaron at Fat, she's like a little bit later, she's like, "Are you guys you guys are going to pay us back for that, right?" <laughs> like we just we didn't know, we didn't right, know. right, and it sounds it sounds like idiotic now but we didn't know no a lot of this stuff is hodgepodge like i've heard so many stories where bands that you know they never got any money from their label for merch 
that the label sold or they didn't know how to negotiate a contract or that, you know, just like all this stuff that happens that, that you don't even know, you know, no one knows what they're doing. You're like figuring out as you go our along. Our second album, that album Comprehensive Guide is by far our best selling album. And it took us the longest time to recoup because of advances that we didn't know we had to pay back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess the label doesn't sit down and like explain every line of the contract to you, huh? No, I, I think that, I mean, and every label is different. Like we, we got treated great by fat always, but right. maybe some labels would do that. Like, Hey, we're signing you to a contract or like, you're going to be this, 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 and this are going to happen to you. And here's how you deal with it. Uh, we, we learned by fucking up basically. And so <laughs> what happens too sometimes is like a label could say, okay, you're done touring on your last album. You were out all year. You, you did great. Now you got to write a new album. We're going to advance you some money. So you guys to live off while you guys are not playing, but instead writing songs. So the, the label's paying for your for you to like pay your rent and stuff while you're working on a new album. But all that stuff's recoupable. Like all that stuff, the label needs to get back. It's like a loan. See, I didn't even know that you had to pay back in advance until right now with you telling me this. <laughs> me neither. I had no idea either. I thought that was like, here's the money to make sure that you guys can live. Well, you can do what we did. Just play dumb and wait till them to call you. I mean. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, it must have been tough being out on the road all the time. Or did you like it? Is that what you wanted? It's hard. It's a really strange, strange way to live. But it is what we have been working our asses off for. So, and we also, we didn't want to turn anything down. There's a point early on, you know, when we're kind of ascending, we're on our way up and we don't want to say no to anything. So we're like, everything that gets offered to us, we take it. Even though looking back, like that was sort of crazy. Like we just ran ourselves ragged. Because we didn't know that we could say no. We thought if we turned down a tour, another band would get it. Right. And maybe they would, but there'd be another tour. Yeah. We just, we just, we just went after it. We, we, we ground ourselves down. And yeah, looking back, there's, there's a lot of things that I, I would have done differently. But we, 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 kept, we kept ourselves pretty busy, like going to Europe for about a month each time. Uh, we went to, we do a North American, full North American tour at least once a year. Wow. Sometimes we'd get offered like a festival tour, like Snow Jam through Canada happened a bunch of times, or we do our own headlining tour and then, oh, Down By Law wants you as main support. So we go through those same cities again on a different tour. Uh, we would we were basically touring every year all across North America and Europe for sure, if not more. And then, you know, hitting Japan here and there, Australia, yeah, stuff like that. So we would, it would be, it was it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah, I mean, just hearing that is making me tired, and I'm just sitting here right now. <laughs> but we were we were young, we were younger, and we were we were like, this is what we wanted, right? Like we were. I was really conscious of like, we're never going to have another opportunity to to, to do this, mm-hmm. and I don't want to be probably the age I am now, and look back and and regret like I wish we would have gone for it. Like it's, it's about making decisions in spite of fear instead of making decisions based on fear. Right. I like that's the way to go. So in 2007, the band broke up. What led to that initial breakup? How old were you at the time? What was the circumstance? Well, we had started slowing down in 2002. So 2001, we were at the, the height of our powers. Like that was the biggest we ever got. Symptoms of Leveling Spirit was the album. It was 
in my opinion, probably our best album to date. We had the year, the year prior, we had done the main stage of the Warp Tour all summer. So 2001, we were out touring. And when that, when that album came out, Fat actually called us up to their office for a marketing meeting, which we'd never heard of or had anything like that before. <laughs> so we're in this room with all the people at Fat figuring out how are we going to promote this album. Uh, I was doing interviews every day, all day. And every town we rolled into on that tour, there was something about us on the weekly. Like it was a palpable uh, push by the label. And we could tell like we were that summer, we toured all across North America and we got to Boston, played Boston. Then we flew to the UK and did Reading and Leeds, flew back to Canada and finished the tour. And uh, we were in a lot of the cities that we played, we were getting bumped up into the next venue, the next size venue up from where we would typically play. And it was, you could sort of feel this like momentum, at least I could uh, with the band. Like we were, we were like a legit headlining band playing big clubs, headlining them, selling them out. And then we went to Europe. So then nine 11 happened. And then like a week later we went to Europe, but the Europe tour was the same thing. Like tons of press bumped up to bigger venues, even during the tour, like as the tour is going because of ticket sales, like they're putting us in the next biggest room in the city. And it was really cool. And it felt it felt like we were finally had finally kind of arrived after like trudging and working our way up. And then Luke decided that he wanted he really wanted to go back to school. And so we suddenly like all of that stopped. And so we played we started playing much less starting in 2002, just based on Luke's schedule. And that that kind of had a ripple effect. Like now we kind of go got to go back and get day jobs because we're not touring and. So the band is like, who knows if we would have kept rolling the way we were in 2001, if it w we would have gotten any bigger, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But things drastically changed, touring a lot less. And uh, it was just kind of a weird, it was kind of a weird time. Like, I didn't really know what to do with myself. And that's when uh, Only Crime started playing. Because I was, I was, I wanted to keep playing shows and touring. Like, I wasn't ready to, to stop. But Good Riddance kept playing. Like, we did an album in 2003. We did, and then our drummer quit, and we got our old drummer back, and we went to Australia, and we did some, we did some shows. And then in 2005, 2006, we did this album called My Republic that we all thought was pretty, pretty bitchin', but nobody bought it. And then we went out and played shows, and nobody came. And we were like, okay, I see what's happening here. I know how this, I know how this movie goes. Yeah. And so we didn't, we didn't want to be that band, you know. Do you think it was the album specifically or just like the landscape of the music scene at the time? Because I've heard that album. I like that album a lot. I think it was a, I think it was a landscape of the music scene and us, us not being in a position to be able to hit it as hard. Like people, people have short memories and there's a lot of bands. And so you got to keep, you got to keep yourself in people's faces to be, to be relevant in this game. And so we were not, we were not able to do that. Uh, also, you know, like my bandmates are now, you know, they're married, they're starting to have children, got little small children at home. Nobody wants to be gone for six months touring with that, with that going on. So, so there was a lot, there was a lot of it. It was with the music, musical thing was changing. There was a lot of like white belts and tight black jeans and MySpace hair. And, um, <laughs> and like, we, we just weren't, we're not that band. And, and we didn't want to be, we didn't want to be that band that was like 
on stage watching the audiences get smaller and smaller and like it was kind of my idea like i got the guys together like our breakup wasn't really a breakup per se it wasn't like a fuck you no fuck you it was like taking a kind of a step back and looking at the musical landscape and looking at our place in it and realizing that we'd had been incredibly fortunate and had a great run and that our our place in in the musical landscape was was pretty well cemented regardless of what else we would do f- from then on and that other life was had other stuff going on for all of us and that it would be a good time to to walk away of our own accord with some grace and some dignity rather than be put out to pasture by someone else that's the way to go i think you make the decision for yourself that, that was what we did yeah so around that time only crime now this is a great band that i had not heard previously so You've got Aaron Dalback of Bane. How did you hook up with him? How did we get that started? In 2002, uh, Bane was one of the bands that was that had submitted to be main support for us on our summer tour, and so we played we played a ton of shows with them. They they basically supported us half the tour, and Aaron and I became good friends. Uh, we'd get to the venue and we'd go get find coffee and we'd hang out and talk. And, and I'd been wanting to see what it would be like to play music with some other people, and I also wanted. I knew what I wanted aesthetically out of a band and musically. And he and I were sort of on, on the same page with that. And so that that's when that started. Like that summer tour 2002 with us in Bain, Aaron and I were already plotting to, to play music together. So I want to make sure that we cover the solo record too. Now you've got this new solo record, Come Together, Fall Apart, which was just released January 28th via Spam Records. Let's talk about some of the inspiration behind this new solo record and how you decided to do it. I can't, I can't really take much of the credit. I, I had first gotten the idea to do solo stuff from Tony, my friend Tony, he was doing it and he was like, Hey, you're a good songwriter. Like you should try doing some songs by yourself. And he let me open some shows for him. I'd written a handful of songs that were specifically to play just solo with a guitar. And then I was lucky enough to get half paper and plastic, be willing to, to release an album. But then I never really could figure out if it was any good or not. Uh, like I didn't play enough shows to get any kind of real sense of whether or not it was worth pursuing. I didn't have a booking agent. And so when the solo album came out in 2012, that was also the year Good Riddance started playing again. So I became busier. And if people called me or hit me up, I, I, I would go play a solo show, but I wasn't really actively out trying to do it. A, because I didn't know if it was any good. B, the world doesn't need another singer guy with a guitar out there but i would play once in a while and then stefan from spam he hit me up i knew him from playing his festival online during the during the pandemic and i knew of his label and i knew that he was pretty well known in europe as far as like his label and his promotion and stuff like that and he had told me that he was a big fan of my first album and that he he was a fan of my songwriting and he's the person that basically put the idea in my head to put it, to do another album. I wasn't thinking about it. And how do you feel about solo gigs? I mean, I've played one solo gig in my life and it really didn't go that great. And I was just too scared to do it again. How do you feel about it now? It's just you and the guitar out there. It's definitely different. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm still getting better at, at playing guitar and acoustic guitar is so unforgiving. Oh yeah. And, and, <laughs> I'm not a natural guitar player. Like I taught myself how to play acoustic guitar with the, the full chords. Like I taught myself how to do it, but I mean, I'm better at it now than I used to be. 
And I do, I do enjoy the more intimate kind of like storyteller aspect of it. Like I can take as long as I want between songs to have a back and forth with the audience or to, to tell a story to color or illustrate a, a song without like three other guys going, Hey, shut up, let's play a song. And so I like that part of it. And I've played some shows where, where the audience seemed to really pay attention and be into it. I've played some shows where a couple people look like they actually knew the words. I've also played to the backs of people sitting at a bar who never turned around once during my whole set. Like I came to, I came to a place I set up, I said my spiel, I played my whole set and not a single person turned around and looked. So I've, and there've been many more of those than the other kind. So that's why I'm, I'm just like not sure whether, whether I'm any good at it or if, if it's worth doing, but with this album, I'm really going to make an effort and I got a booking agent. And so we'll see what happens. Does that bother you if you're playing a gig and people aren't even paying attention or have you been around long enough that it can bounce off you? It, it, both. It, it's, it bothers me, but like they don't owe me anything. Like it's, it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird vibe because when you're, when you're a band, everybody turns around just cause it's so loud. But like I'm playing my set and I can hear people talking and having conversations with each other. And, uh, and a lot of times people aren't even paying attention. Have you ever played a solo set and you can actually hear people talking about you while you're playing? I haven't heard that yet. But I'm, I'm sure that's, <laughs> I'm sure that's coming. <laughs> so reading about and listening to come together, fall apart, you said that the record is inspired by the state of the world through your eyes and some of the more difficult and personal experiences that you and people close to you had gone through. What is some of your ex- personal experience that has gone into this record? What were you going through when you wrote it? Well, 2020 was was a tough year, I think, for everybody. But I, I actually had some extra sprinkles on top. I had both, both of my parents passed away. Uh, I was engaged, and then that ended, and she moved out. Uh, and then I, I also had to get evacuated from my house because of fires. It was a doozy of a year. So like, for example, that song, Last Conversation, I was, I was able, my parents are divorced and they didn't die. They died different times, but I was able to visit each of them really close to the end and, and have really good talk with each of them. And that's what inspired that song. And then also just looking at the, the state of my country and, and the divisiveness and watching people uh, with each, with each thing that happened, like we got uh, the pandemic and then we got George Floyd and all of the the protests about police brutality. And then we have COVID and, and uh, people fighting over masks, people fighting over whether it's real people fighting over. And then eventually there's a vaccine, but then people are going to fight about that too. Just watching this country sort of tear itself apart. And especially personally, like there's probably a dozen people that I thought I knew really well and I'd known for years that I no longer speak with. And uh, it was really sort of heartbreaking and just watching the way that we would sort of crawl into our dogmatic foxholes and sort of lob grenades at each other rather than have any kind of discourse or, or unity that that's, that informed a lot of the album, a lot of the songwriting as well. I was going to I'm sorry. 2020 was not the year of uh, meaningful conversations. There's a lot of people. Uh, I always think of like just Facebook posts of like, you can just watch the, the conversation just devolve of just people just being really mean to each other and not 
even trying to listen to the other side and just repeating talking points. And it's like, gosh, if we would just listen to each other for a second, just hear people out and just give people a chance to give their point so that my social media accounts are still like that. Like, it's just, it's unbelievable. Some of the things that people say, and, and I always, I'm struck by a couple things. I'm how, how do these people matriculate to my Instagram or my Facebook? Like wh- what, what about, what about me and my, like, it's just like, I, I guess I, it's, it's not, doesn't help anybody to just have to preach to the choir and only speak to people that agree with me. But it also like, if like, I feel like my politics and where I stand on the world are, are a matter of public record by now. And, but people that are from a complete, have a completely different take on everything are on my social media accounts saying like, what happened to you, man? You, I, I used to like your music. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's baffling. It's baffling to me. And then also the other thing I think about is there are so many people in this country that like are advocating a, a worldview that I would, that I would with every fiber of my being oppose but at the, but we're all Americans and we have to live together. Like we have to figure it out. We have to find, we have, we have to find a way. I'm with you on that. And I, I don't like the whole, like it was really bad during the election. Like, Oh, we just need to get this new guy in and then everything's going to be okay. Or, Oh, if, if, uh, if we just got rid of Republicans, everything would be okay. Or, oh, if we just got rid of Democrats, everything. I don't think everybody realizes that we're all fucked and we need to find a new way to handle things together or nothing is ever going to improve. Yeah. And that's, I've, I've been saying that for forever. Well, I'm with you on that, Russ, and we're going to get everybody else in the world on board with us. What do you think of that? <laughs> that's great. Let's, let's open the debates. Let's get rid of the, <laughs> get rid of citizens United. Let's, let's dissolve the CPD. Let's let people really decide and see what's going on out there. And uh, we're, we're all going to meet at Russ's uh, Instagram account. And we're going to hash this out together. Good luck. There's there's some be- there's some there's some beauties on my Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure you find people that are just like, are you just here to be antagonistic? Is that why you came in? Like just to start shit and just walk away? Uh, Russ, my my question is about with uh, the the single that was released was uh, Babel. It, can you talk a little bit about that? Does it have a lot to do or does it kind of relate to what we were just talking about where, uh, you know, people, the sto- if you guys aren't familiar with the story of uh, Babel, there was, you know, uh, there was a time, it's a, a story from the Old Testament, but uh, there was a singular language that was shared by a group. Um, and as punishment from God, they were all uh, doomed to speak different tongues and no longer to be un- able to understand each other. Is that kind of where Babel is kind of, hinting at is the the inability for us to communicate any longer yeah like i i was i was banging on my guitar trying to write songs and i hit that f and i that line on my way to Babel just sort of came into my head out of nowhere and and i like oh that sounds pretty cool and so i went to build a song around it and then i was reading reading on because i don't know a lot about it and so i so i read up read about it and i was like this is really cool because it's it's kind of like what's happening now. Like you said, we have fail. I have the failure to communicate with each other anymore. And uh, so it's, it's a cool song. Like, I feel like it's, it's, it's a cool song anyway, like melodically and all of that, but it is sort of timely with, with a, 
timely, but from a really old base. Russ, uh, talking about some of the things you went through, you had an incredibly tough year, losing both of your parents, uh, losing your fiance, getting evacuated in a wildfire. How do you cope? Who do you turn to? What do you do when you're facing so many things at once? Well, there's the, there's the realization that there's millions of people in the world that have it way worse than me. And then what I do is I try to be other-centered in times like that. And so for me, that looks like helping other people out, calling up my friends and asking how they're doing. Just doing, doing things to like not think about myself usually gets, gets, it gets me some relief. That makes sense. I've heard you say uh, other people have it worse than me a couple of times. Is that a, is that a thought you go back to a lot that, that can help you through whatever you're getting through? Uh, well, I think it's important to have perspective and to have gratitude and to realize that everything is an opportunity for growth and that like, I, I don't believe that I'm special and singled out for like an extra share of misery than anybody else is. I, I think that everything that happens is an opportunity. It, it can be, it can be a, a thing that, that breaks people, but it can also be an opportunity. And so like, I would all like think, think about what am I, what am I supposed to learn from this? Like, what is, what's going on here? Like, what am I, what am I supposed to be getting out of this? And then combining that with, with like, how can I help somebody else right now? Just for this, just for the, the sheer like release of not having to be in my own brain dealing with it. I think that's a healthy mindset. I, you know, I've been through some stuff. I've been through some things. And uh, at this age now in the year 2022, I look at potential hardships as an opportunity to grow and learn because I've been through some things in the past couple of years and I've come out of them stronger. So that's, that's kind of try to, that's where I try to keep my head about the whole thing. Yeah. That's, I mean, you have a choice, but really what's the alternative? It's, it's just, it becomes like, oh, poor me, like, I have it so bad. And uh, I, I don't think that helps anybody. So uh, we've read that you are a hockey scout. Now let's talk about this. Is this your main gig? No, it's pretty much volunteer. Now, how does one become a hockey scout? Walk us through this. Typically, my path is not, it, my, my path is, is very atypical. Normally, it's what somebody does who has grown up around the game or played at a high level or coached at a high level at some point. Uh, I was happen I happened to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, I had a, a friend who advocated for me, who was in a good, who was in a, a pretty high position in the hockey world. And that I was able to parlay that into a, into a gig scouting. And who were you scouting for? Is it NHL players? No, I wish that's, that's the dream. I scout in a league called the Western hockey league. You guys ever heard of it? No. Tell us about it. Where are you guys based out of? Uh, Northeast. I'm in Brooklyn, and Tommy is just outside of Philadelphia. Do you guys know anything about major junior hockey? Not a thing. Okay. Uh, no, I, I grew up playing lacrosse, so I, I, I know a little bit about the way offense and defense runs in hockey, but I don't know anything about the recruiting or about their, like the, how people move after college. So the, high, the highest level of junior hockey that someone can play is in a league called the CHL, the Canadian Hockey League, which is a an umbrella league made up of three regional leagues. So there's the Quebec league, the Ontario league and the Western hockey league. So let's say a player in Pennsylvania is, 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 is an elite hockey player. And when they get to be about 14, 15, they're going to start getting attention from the Ontario hockey league. Cause they're, 
you know, Americans to play in this league are eligible by, by region. And so, uh, for, for our league, which is, has 22 teams, most of which are in Western Canada, but there's, there's teams in Portland, Seattle, Everett, Tri Cities, and I think that's it, Spokane. So it's, it's for our league is basically 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 year olds, mostly 17, 18, 19s. And NHL, the NHL scouts our league. So players get drafted out of our league and play in the NHL. And so what we do, like when we're scouting, we, we draft players when they're bantams, which is 14 turning 15. So like this year I'm watching 07s, like players that were born in 07. And we draft them. We have a bantam draft in May. And so my area is California. So I'm watching all the, the tier one elite bantam players from California. So I got to know, I got to identify the players, do reports on them, and then also contact the families and see if there's any interest in our league. Because a, a lot of Americans don't really know about it. And a lot, of, a lot of American parents, they think their kid's going to get a D1 scholarship. So if you go to call, play college hockey, you're not playing until you're maybe 19, 19, 20. And an NHL team, NHL, your NHL draft year is 18. So NHL scouts all the, kid, all the players that are 18, wherever, wherever they're playing, when they're turning 18. And so if you're in our league, you can play at 16. If you're really, really good, mostly you play at 17, 18, 19. 18 is your draft year. But a lot of I've noticed that a lot of Americans don't know a lot about Canadian major junior hockey. They don't know about the league, and they just think their kid's going to get a D1 scholarship. So if you play in our league, you can't play D1 hockey. You're burned because our players get like a, some money every week for food and stuff. So the NCAA says they're professional. So it's sort of like you got to choose. If you, if you sign a contract to play in our league, you can't play D1 hockey. So you play in our league, and every year that you play, when you're done, you have 18 months to cash in on your scholarship package, which is books and tuition and compulsory fees at a university of your choice for each year that you played in our league. So it's a pretty good fallback. So I spent a lot of time basically just explaining what the league is to parents and what the benefits are. And then uh, if, if, they're, if they're interested, then I, I make sure that I let my, I have my head scout or my GM know. So how do you find the good players? Do you have to go into town and ask who's the best or is there No, you go well in, in my like in in California there's they got to be AAA players usually. So that's the best, you know, like when you're playing when you're playing youth hockey, there's single A, double AA, A, triple A. Triple A is the best. So in in California there's typically four teams that I watch. So Junior Sharks, Junior Ducks, Junior Kings. There's a team this year called the California Golden Bears that were AAA. Other years, it's been the San, San Diego Junior Goals. Uh, so, like, basically going to those games and identifying the players, and then going back and seeing them several other times. And then there's the state championships I go to, and then the USA Hockey Pacific District Championships, which we just were at last weekend in, in Irvine. That those are every year. So, Russ, tell us what's coming up. Where can we see you? Where can we hear you? Either in Good Riddance or solo. So, I'll be headed to Europe on the fifteenth. Uh, for, to do solo shows for a couple weeks. Uh, April, I'll be in the East Coast, be in Philadelphia, Brooklyn, Boston, New Haven. And I think I have a New Jersey show playing solo. And then in May, Good Riddance is going to be playing a lot of those same places on our way up to Pusa Fest in Montreal. We'll be out with War on Women. And then in June, we go to Europe. Excellent. All right. So, folks, make sure you check out Russ's latest solo record, Come Together, Fall Apart. It's out right now. It's available via Spom Records. 
We want to hear it. We want to see it. We want to purchase it. Right, Russ? Yes, that's great. That would be great. Yes, let's do it. If you somehow haven't heard Good Riddance yet, folks, do that too. Classic stuff. Classic stuff. Do you agree with that, Russ? I'm not really in a position to be objective about that. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take, your word, take your word for it. Well, Russ, we want to thank you for uh, taking the time to speak with us tonight. You know, you've created a lot of music that we love, that many people love, and uh, we just want to say thank you. Thank you, guys. There you have it, folks. Russ Rankin. Excellent conversation. It was great to talk to Russ. It was great to hear about his life. It was great to hear about scouting for hockey. Yeah, Tommy, that would have been a good follow-up question. Do you play hockey? How did? No, he said. Uh, he remember he said he had a friend who yeah. who got him into the biz. I think exactly. Yeah, he's got to know a lot about hockey. Like you would have to know a lot about hockey to be a hockey scout, right? Well, you have to know like technique. You need to like be able to watch a player and say like, okay, this guy's a good offensive player because, or this guy's a good defensive player because, or this is a good goalie because like, but I think he is looking at those, like, you know, he specifically talked about those triple A people. He's really looking at like top tier level. Like these are kids that have been playing hockey for a very long time and have been you know, kind of funneled through all the programs that like, okay, this is the best of the, you know, top third. Okay. This is the best of the next second third. This is the the best of the best. And, you know, like that's what you end up with at, you know, 16 kids that are, you know, because you have people that are playing in the NHL that are 18 years old. Yeah. And Russ has just been involved in so much great music between good riddance, the solo record come together, fall apart. It's out now, folks, check it out. I like that a lot. Only Crime with Aaron Dalback from Bean. I like that a lot too. So so thank you, Russ. Now, folks, as I mentioned in segment one, this is not a drill. This is not an April Fool's joke. This is not a prank. Tommy is leaving the show. He is abandoning us, <laughs> and we are upset with him, and we are going to give it to him good. No, no. Now, listen, Tommy has to leave the show. Now, it, probably not forever. Like, may, he might be able to come back in a year or something. I don't know. Or, like, drop in maybe. And it, Listen, we don't know. We don't know what's going on exactly. But, Tommy, lay it on us. Tell us what's going on. So, without getting into, like, huge detail, like, it, it all started, like, you know, Keith and I had a bit of a disagreement. And we got into talking about, like, what motivates us to do the show. And what we kind of came to the conclusion, both of us, like at the end of it was like, I, I, I treat the show as a hobby. I really do. And I, and for people that are like diehard fans or people that tune in every week, I apologize. I'm, this isn't like, I, I'm not phoning it in, but also I, I have three kids under the age of eight and a full-time job where it involves me getting up at, you know, five thirty, six o'clock in the morning. So when we started talking about it and my wife and I started talking about it, it came down to like some things that had been really difficult for her, uh, me being in the, you know, recording a couple times a week or at least once a week were really, really hard on her, really hard. Um, and you know, I felt like I was neglecting my job as a dad, which is ultimately, you know, my priority. 
Uh, my priority is making sure I'm a, a good husband and a good father. And I feel like sometimes the show for good or for bad, uh, as much as I love doing it, uh, sometimes gets in the way of that. And it, for those reasons, I, I really do have to go. Yeah. And this show does take up a lot of time, even for Tommy, because, you know, since we started the contract with iodine and things have kicked up a lot, we'll sometimes record three in a week, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. And that's, I don't know, 10 hours of the week, Tommy. Yeah. And it's like, the biggest thing is, if it was eight o'clock in the morning, it would be a different story. It's the, the the time I need to be here in the basement recording is the time when my kids need to go to bed, and my it's the whole night basically that that you're yeah, you're like you know we're on yeah so essentially uh, without going into like super big details because I do that a lot <laughs> I, do that, I do that a lot um, a regular Monday night for me was coming home making dinner as quickly as possible uh, making sure everybody was fed. And then cleaning up dinner, emptying the dishwasher, loading the dishwasher, because we run the dishwasher at night, and then going into like, okay, I have to get X, Y, and Z done before I'm downstairs. And then walking downstairs like the, you know, like the upstairs didn't exist. And the unfortunate part is the upstairs exists like full fucking force. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's uh, you know, there's been times where we've been on here where, you know, I've had to mute myself because the baby's screaming or the kids are jumping or, you know, life doesn't stop because of the show. I I think me, it, it, me leaving the show isn't goodbye. It's I'll see you guys later. Yeah. Tommy is going to be back at some point to drop in and check in on us and listen, Tommy, you know, I've been a mess this week. Do you know that? I haven't. And I don't I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean, I'm like legitimately depressed that you have to go because we started this thing together. And yeah, I don't know if we made it clear, folks, the show will go on. As they say in showbiz, the show must go on and it will. But, you know, Tommy, we started this thing together. We've told the story a million times. And the fact that, you know, you won't be there with me on Monday night or Wednesday night or whatever night we're recording with me it's sad you help take the edge off and you're you're one of my best friends so i'm i'm really sad i'm gonna miss it a lot there's nothing like saying that a part of your day is going downstairs to go talk to people about the thing that they truly love the vast majority of our guests have literally dedicated their lives they've given up so much to make art that makes us happy and that makes us smile and that makes us feel things and that makes us think and that makes us feel one with each other even when we're by ourselves in our car like fucking singing along like I, it's it's hard to say goodbye to something that has been a huge part of my life for 2 years oh christ all right <laughs> Oh, I think you're going to play, don't play the Doom music, because the Doom, <laughs> the Doom one's going to make me really upset. Um, yeah, there, there's a song from the Doom soundtrack I play when we start to calm me down. But no, folks, you know, when Tommy and I started this show, we didn't know what it was, and we weren't sure what it was going to be, and we didn't know it was going to be weekly. We, we talked to many guests, we, we talked about Costco, we talked about math. We talked about parenting, 
And uh, we, of course, talked about how Tommy is constantly trying to find ways to save money. (laughs) But now he goes on to greener pastures, to be with his family, and hopefully to take this new job, right? Is that still out? Uh, Just quick answer, quick answer, because I'm rolling here. Yes. Okay, so the show that was once about Costco, corn, and math... Oh, shit. It will now be, it will now be about uh, music, and music and uh, Warzone, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, Tommy, I I hope you know that you're one of my best friends still, and that I am really sad that you're leaving. But you know, we're still friends. We'll still talk, and you can still come back to the show at some point. So I appreciate you. I love you. The audience loves you, and I just wow. I, this is uh, this is kind of crazy. So uh, it's very odd that you picked. Not odd. I, I think it's very telling that you picked that song because there is a clip in there. Uh, do you know who that man's voice is? No, who is it? Uh, he is a philosopher named Alan Watts, who is really credited with bringing Eastern philosophy to the West. And one of the things that, uh, I took a quote from him, and this is something I wrote down and I kind of wanted to not leave on this, but, uh, press pause and kind of use some ellipses. So a little dot, dot, dot. Man suffers only because he takes seriously what the gods make for fun. Wow. I I thought it was such a good summation. And this is a fucking, this is a 108 moment. Like this is a. Yeah. Cause I just went on YouTube and Googled uh royalty free, sad music. And I really like that track for like the outro speech and see, this is another beautiful synchronicity that we have on this show so i i can't wait till somebody points out that that's not alan watts <laughs> <laughs> I, I really hope i hope it's him because it sounds like him and it's it's in that same idea no we, we're saying it, it is that's to, it because it has it's to. too beautiful it has, it to, has be. to be it has to be and even if it's not for the purposes of this show it is like i i consistently go back to what i loved about and what I still love about hardcore is what raises the hair on the back of my neck when I'm driving to work and singing along with a song. It's not the guitar part. It's not the you know drum section. It's not the bass. It's not the vocals. It's the the unity. It's the friendship. It's the belonging. It's the we're part of something so much bigger than ourselves. We are larger than the sum of our parts. We are. We are hardcore. Like that's what we like. And I know that this show isn't about just hardcore, but thank you. We like that's what encapsulated and what really brought all of this together for me was that was the beginning. It we had something. It was that shared thing, like that we all couldn't necessarily articulate really well, but we could look at it and say, "This is why I." Like, it's the reason that when you go to see All Else Failed 20 years later, it's the same people. <laughs> like it's, it's the same dudes screaming along, singing along, 
having a blast and just loving the fact that we're part of something bigger than us. And to me, ultimately, that's what music is. It's somebody's created something that unites people in a way that very few things can. And uh, I think there's something beautiful with that. Well, I think that's a wonderful way to close it, Tommy. I agree. Do you want to talk about Costco or math one last time before we turn off the microphone? Uh, Costco, no. Math, yes. Uh, no, please don't. <laughs> life is important. Life is something that is slowly passing us by. And if you don't take a moment to sit down and really appreciate what you have, you're going to end up regretting a lot of things. And I regret nothing about this show. I regret nothing about anything I've done with this show. Um, but ultimately, when I've sat down and really thought about what this means to me, nothing is more important and nothing really makes more sense to me than making sure my, my daughters have that understanding. And that's it. That's all I got. There you go, folks. That's it. That's it. Well, that's not it, because we're going to be back next week with another wonderful, new, and exciting guest, but just without Tommy. For now, for now, for now. So, Tommy, once again, I appreciate you. We appreciate you. And you'll always have a home here at the new scene. I just appreciate everything you've done for me. Like, uh, you've you put me in a position to talk to people that I never had the position to talk to. And uh, I just, I'm going to miss it like hell. But at the same time, again, not goodbye. Just see you later. There you go. Well, yeah, it's, it really feels like goodbye, even though we're probably still going to talk all the time. I, I just, I almost don't want to hit stop. I can't bring myself to do it, Tommy. <laughs> well, something, I, I have to go to bed soon. <laughs> okay. All right. Look, that's it, folks. I'm back next week with a brand new guest for you. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and until next time. so weird to think about some of this music and those times like i can listen to a record and be right back in that time and have that feeling and it, it just feels like a lifetime ago oh yeah
No, 100%. Dude. Yeah. That's all you got, man? Come on. I'm sorry. Keep I was, going. <coughs> I'm coughing. <laughs> <laughs> I actually hit mute like at the right time, and then she <laughs> started talking to me again. Yeah. Um, I, Yo, I was so thrown. You're like, it does. I and know. I'm waiting for you to say more, and I'm like, "Oh my god, something's I, wrong." <laughs> I took a sip of water, and it went down the wrong, <laughs> went down the wrong pipe. Oh my give, word! Give yourself a second. Yeah, 